You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with Danny Bassett and Perry Zern. Danny is professor of bioengineering at University of Pennsylvania, and Perry is a professor of philosophy at American University. And in addition to being siblings, they're the co-authors of this book right here, Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. I have to say, this is the first time I've had siblings on the show. (laughs) So maybe we'll have some sibling rivalry. But what I found fascinating is that coming from such radically different disciplines, you manage to converge around a series of interlocking ideas. And of course, as would be expected, given that you're coming from these very different disciplines, you you talk a lot about interdisciplinary work. You talk about transdisciplinary work. And I think at the end, you talk about de-disciplinary work. So we'll have to figure out what exactly that is. The book is motivated by this notion of curiosity and combining both kind of the philosophical and biological or neurological approaches to curiosity. And so in today's world, our philosophy and neuroscience really distinct fields. It seems like there's this convergence where the modern philosopher has to be, or at least the modern philosopher of knowledge has to be in some sense a neuroscientist. And and neuroscientists in some sense, although you're in bioengineering, don't they also have to be philosophers to some degree? Yeah, absolutely. So I think that our respective fields are thought of and in many ways practiced as incredibly distinct, but there are places as with any fields where there's a blurring or a bleeding between them. And that's our happy place. That's where we want to sit. Yeah, and I think from the scientific perspective, it's true that the more we understand about the brain, the more we ask about the mind and about how we come to know. And that definitely connects up to philosophy very tightly. Although I think that engaging with philosophers is something that neuroscientists could do fruitfully more often. (laughs) I think it's something we could grow to do more. You talk a bit about the scientific method, and the scientific method combines the freedom of curiosity with the constraint or discipline of method. I guess we're going to dig into lots of different aspects of curiosity, but does the scientific method in some ways limit our curiosity, or does it channel our curiosity? Yeah, I think it channels and constrains our curiosity. So it stipulates a form of questions that is valued by the scientific community. And that form of question is powerful and has led to many wonderful scientific discoveries. But I think it's also true that it's not the only form in which question or question asking or inquiry can be followed. And so in that sense, I think it's important to expand beyond the scientific method in investigations of all sorts. So I think that that's one of the motivations for interdisciplinary work is that the kind of questioning, the constraints on questioning that are present in other fields are complementary Mm -hmm. and different. And that by combining these different ways of knowing, we can make greater progress. So those are good constraints. But in the book, you also talk a lot about the bad constraints, right? You talk about how curiosity is policed everywhere. Are disciplinary boundaries a form of policing? (laughs) First of all, I guess talk a little bit about the bad rap that curiosity sometimes gets. And of course, you begin with Augustine, right? In other podcasts, we've talked about Augustine as the one that starts 
criticizing people for being, you know, too curiosities. I think he might have been the person that came up with the phrase, curiosity kills the cat. Or if you didn't come up with it, that's sort of a summary in part of what he was trying to do when he talked about a specific type of curiosity. I mean, everyone, at least here in Silicon Valley, talks about innovation, talk about curiosity. And it's hard to find somebody who has a bad thing to say explicitly about curiosity. But do we, even the people who are the pro-innovation, pro-education folks, are they implicitly saying that curiosity is something that we need to police and constrain and discourage? There's a little bit of a hint that the entire educational project that most people are exposed to is in some ways deadening our curiosity to some degree. Yeah, I think there's a sense in which there's a right way to be curious in educational, traditional educational settings today. And that spans a, a network of behaviors that are typical of what people understand as curiosity. Again, whether it's in educational settings or, as you say, Silicon Valley or any workplace environment. And what's challenging for us and what we're really committed to doing is to expanding the sets of behaviors that we recognize as curious behaviors because those will upset how a classroom runs and they will upset how a workplace runs. So I do think that uh, overarchingly there is a kind of policing of curious behaviors that trying to funnel them into one particular set of expressions that is just not true of the diversity of actual human behavior. Is there an agreed upon definition of curiosity? I think in the book, you walk through a bunch of different ways to think about this. There's one theory, which is yeah. it's just a search for knowledge. And I think you said that if curiosity had a personal ad, it would be singular unitary knower seeks specific unit of knowledge. I mean, whose definition is that? Where does that come from? And why is that too constraining? Yeah, so I think that definition comes from the sort of history of the Western intellectual tradition. And this goes back to Augustine and thinking through curiosity as something that is acquisitional. It's a single person, a single mind that needs to go out and acquire a piece of information. And that's been present over that idea of curiosity has been present over the last many centuries. But I think what we are trying to do in, to the, in the book is to say that sort of approach misses a lot of the power of curiosity and the mental affordances of curiosity. So if you go out and acquire independent pieces of information, you can ask, what can I do with independent pieces of information? I can stash them in a pocket. I could put them in a curiosity cabinet, but then what do I do with them? You know, I can take them out and admire them every now and then and put them back in the closet or I can take them out of my pocket, admire them, put them back in my pocket. But what do you do with independent pieces of knowledge? You can't actually do anything. You can't reason. You can't perform inference. You can't perform predictions. All of those cognitive processes require you to connect pieces of information. And so we argue that it's that connective property of information gathering, information seeking, that is what curiosity does. And it provides us with then a full interconnected knowledge base that allows us to reason from our past and make new decisions in the future. It allows us to understand the mental processes of another person. And it also allows us to connect among people themselves. So it is this connective process, whether it's between pieces of information or between people, in doing so, it provides us with this power to reason, to potentially pursue social change, to really think big about what knowledge can do in the world. You talk about this network theory of knowledge. How is that different from associationalism? Just the idea that, you know, what wires together, fires together, you know, the old notion that thinking is a matter of 
drawing connections and finding relationships and building models. How does understanding network theory help us to understand how knowledge is laid down through this process of curiosity? I think the important contribution of network science to that conversation is really related to its capacity to quantify the shape mm -hmm. of a connected architecture. So yes, ideas are associated, neurons are wired together. Those are foregrounding the relational process, but they don't foreground or really understand at all the, the shape of the connected structure that is then created. And so that's what network science allows us to do, is it allows us to distinguish between the shapes of two different connected pieces. So for example, if you think of the Eiffel Tower, and then you think of the telecommunications tower in your town, you can tell me that those two structures are very similar, but also very different. But if I ask you how they're similar or how they're different, that becomes really hard. And so what network science allows us to do is to quantify exactly how they're different and how they're similar, and also what that means for how the structure can function. In the case of the Eiffel Tower, it's going to be a function of rigidity, right? We need to have the thing be rigid. There's also a function of aesthetics. We want it to be beautiful. But in the context of curiosity and knowledge building, there are different sorts of functions. What if we create a network in our mind that is very rigid because of the ways that we've connected pieces of information together? What if we connect it in a way where the shape is actually quite flexible and allows us to adapt and change to new information? That's really helpful for human survival and also for contributing to our collective well-being. So, what network science does, just to summarize, is really quantify those shapes, say how they're different, and offer an account of their functional affordance. So can we talk about the shape of someone's knowledge? If we imagine a world where we could, I don't know, run a scan of someone's brain, right? I mean, I remember reading about how there's a map in your brain, not just of yeah. your homunculus, but also every concept. I remember there was some literature a couple of years ago where there was a Angelina Jolie neuron, right? there is a grandma neuron, and there's every single concept out there and every single fact out there has some neuron, and then these neurons are talking to one another. Is that the idea that we could somehow create a network graph of a specific individual's knowledge base, and then the process of learning is how that shape is being constructed? Yes, that's the idea. It's a teeny bit different from the Angelina Jolie neuron, just in the sense that where we think concepts are being encoded and where the newest literature is suggesting that they're being encoded is not in single neurons, but in clusters of neurons. So it's a little bit of a higher spatial resolution. But yes, the idea is that we can actually currently, scientists are using magnetic resonance imaging, having people lie down inside of a, an MRI machine and then mapping out how they're thinking about concepts and the relationships between concepts. And what we can see is that there are maps. There are maps that tell us whether two concepts are related or not related. And then there are also maps that tell us how distant those concepts are. So there's actually a notion of conceptual distance that's present in the mind. The piece of the brain that does that most is what's called the hippocampal entorhinal system. It's a piece of the brain that's towards the center. And that's very important for mapping your physical world. So when you move into a room or into a new landscape, your hippocampus will map that physical space. It'll estimate distance distances, it'll map out where you could be in the space, and then it will help you navigate the space and move around obstacles. That same piece of the brain apparently is doing 
those sorts of computations, but for concepts too, which is just a really new and exciting observation in the field. So what that suggests to us is that we are navigating conceptual space in this interconnective way with the same computations that we use for physical navigation. So I always think of creativity as arbitrage across different conceptual domains. If you think about the Eiffel Tower, at the very basic level, it's steel, it's French, it's tall, it's 19th century. You know, there's like a whole inventory of characteristics that this thing might have. And it seems like that inventory is in flux. I do crossword puzzles from time to time, and there's always this little aha moment. There's like a little flip that happens. So for instance, if the clue is a diamond clue, and you keep thinking, okay, this is something to do with jewelry, something to do with jewelry, something to do with jewelry. And then there's a the little flip when you realize, oh no, it's talking about a baseball field. And it's almost like that relationship existed, but it was latent and then gets brought to the fore. And it seems like that process is when you're doing that, when you're rummaging around trying to figure out that new association, that is a form of curiosity, is it not? It's not like you're out in the world accumulating new sense phenomenon, but you're just rummaging around inside your existing conceptual base trying to find new associations. Perry, that sounds a lot like the dancer. Yeah, it does. And we do talk about different styles of curious connecting or building, which would apply here. But I did want to say that Part of what I think you're describing is practices of noticing or practices of attunement, which have consistently been thought of as part of curious behaviors. When we're curious, we direct our observational skills, our capacity to notice things or to attune to certain things, attune to particular dynamics, for example. That's something that's at the core of what curiosity does. That's how it does some of its connecting work. And that means that if you have one angle in which you're attuning to things, you'll miss this other one, right? So if you're attuning to the jewelry, you'll miss the baseball field. And so this means that part of what we need when we're really dynamically curious is that we can shift in attunements or shift in styles of noticing or practices of observation. And that goes a little bit toward what we've done as far as styles of curiosity. Since you can talk about the shape of knowledge that someone might have, with networks, there are ones that have more or less entropy. And so when we talk about somebody's knowledge, does it make sense to say that, okay, this person has more or less entropy or more nodes and more edges? And what would it mean? Would different types of knowledge architectures be better for certain environments? Or are you making the case that certain architectures are better just full stop? Most people would say, if you have more knowledge, that's better than having less knowledge. You're smarter. If you have more edges, that means, what, you're more curious, or if you have more nodes. How, when you're thinking about this taxonomy of how people have architected their knowledge, is there a better or worse, in your view? Is there an architecture that if you had your druthers and you could build one from scratch over the course of your lifetime, would you seek out a particular type of architecture? In the book, we don't necessarily consider the size of the network to be good or bad. So having more nodes or less nodes or more connections or less connections. But we do think a little bit about what makes a network changeable so that when you're doing your crossword puzzle, you can move from the diamonds as jewelry to the diamonds as baseball. The reason that you can do that is because you haven't fixed the word diamond only to jewelry. You have in the back of your mind these other associations too. So what we do think about is how would we go about building networks of knowledge that aren't rigid? 
but that are changeable and that are flexible and can reconfigure or conform. We draw inspiration here from enzymes, which in the body are these very complicated interconnected structures that have the capacity to change their shape in order to allow a particular chemical process to occur. We've done some work in my lab to physically model that process and mathematically model that process so that we understand what it is about a connective structure that allows for it to change its shape or conform or reconfigure. And so what we're interested in then is to use that mathematical model to say, this is how one would go about building a network of knowledge that is adjustable. And we think that has important implications for how we go about our world, since we're constantly being presented with new information that requires us to kind of rethink what we thought in the past. Is there a trade-off? If you're a decathlete, it means you're probably not the best in the world at anything. You can switch from javelin throwing to sprinting or swimming or whatever. But in any one of those sports, the one that just does that one thing is going to be better. Is there a downside? Can your brain be too flexible? Can you get sucked into a whirlpool of associations and conceptual shifting? There are thinkers and writers who have been called associative writers. And some people find that kind of writing really exciting and other people find it too expansive. I think this gets back a little bit to our part of the conversation around discipline and curiosity. I think that there are some fields that really do not value association in quite the same way and would value more rigid cognitive structures. I think both of us, Perry, you can chime in here, I guess. I think both of us would value both kinds and just understanding when and how to use them. Mm -hmm. We do often think about the histories of our fields and the ways in which Really early on, multiple fields were connected in really robust, deep ways, such that a person was a philosopher and a physicist and a musician all in one. And some of the innovations and discoveries of those times remain standing today. There must be something suggestive there that perhaps is one of the kernels of why, for example, honors programs are run the way they are, which is like, you need to be in math and you need to be in philosophy and you need to be in music all at once and see what happens. Because there is something that opens up there. Perhaps there's a sweet spot, right? Such that you're not an athlete in, in 10 different areas. But to be versant in a number of these fields and areas, something else can happen because of that awareness and facility. You guys both described your childhood in the book about being homeschooled. And it was a very unstructured educational environment where you could move from learning one thing to learning another. I went to Montessori school and it was very similar in that the teacher was hands off, but there was this environment that was designed for curiosity. You could go on over to the botany section and learn about plants and then head on over to the geology section and learn about stones and then go hit up the library and read biographies and stuff. And that I think shaped my learning for the rest of my life. But you also both have pursued PhDs and become specialists. And I think you said somewhere in the book that the purpose of a PhD is to teach you how little you know about yeah, a particular domain. But does having that kind of unstructured educational experience help you to be a better specialist? In my case, it made it almost impossible for me to become a, a specialist. As soon as I learned, got to know something pretty well, I was like, all right, that's time to switch, time to switch topics, switch domains. That's interesting. I don't know. I do think that what we gained from our homeschooled upbringing is the appreciation that we can 
ask questions that sit at the boundaries between disciplines and that art can have something to say about it and history can have something to say about it and science can have something to say about it and literature can have something to say about it and that it's at that nexus that I think we get really excited. Those are the kinds of questions that we are thrilled to pursue. I don't think that necessarily explains why we both got our PhDs. Perry, I'll let you speak about your experience, but from my experience, I just thought that ending my education would have been like the saddest moment in my life. <laughs> so I like at every stage, I just kept going because I didn't want to stop. And even now as a research professor, I get to wake up every morning and ask the question that I'm most excited to ask. And I get to learn new things every single day. That's what I'm paid to do. And I get to discover things that nobody else knew before. I mean, it's a career of learning. So I didn't have to say goodbye. To it, so I didn't have to get sad. Anyway, Perry, how about you? I likewise felt the same way. I was never ready to leave school, and I'm still not ready to leave school. So I've ca I count myself lucky that I'm, s I'm still essentially in school. I approach my research that way, but I also approach my teaching that way. There's no time in which I repeat a class the same way I did it before, because I would be bored, and then I would wonder what I'm doing with my life. It's delightful to stay in it. But I do think that we have been unable to stick really super closely to whatever the most mainstream topics and methods of our fields are. And I think that's because we've known from an early age that there's more freedom in inquiry than fields allow. Mm -hmm. But that said, I think our irrepressible curiosity is also tuned to how many ways can I get really, really, really deep into these methods or these multiple ways of asking questions. And that has made us experts of a kind, right? We are experts in our fields or in several fields each, but the expertise has to do with the facility of using particular methods and addressing particular issues when it's useful for an inquiry and knowing when that is, rather than an expertise of, I know exactly what to deploy to answer the typical style questions and move on with my life. So I think that the notion of expertise is a little bit complicated here. Do you think practitioners at university level overestimate the degree to which they are expected to focus on the core of their discipline? Is it a frequency-dependent thing? Like, hey, every discipline needs to have people who are digging deep within the silo, and then they need to have folks on the edge that are exploring the edges. I guess this gets back to your idea of the optimal kind of network for knowledge creation. I do think that when people go into academia, the easier route is to ask the central questions, the mainstream questions, and use the mainstream approaches. And that's the less risky route. You're more likely to be recognized in your field. Your work is more likely to be understood by your field and valued by your field. And so you may get more visibility. So I think that the routes that we took are not, I don't think it's necessarily that it had to be that way because it's frequency dependent, but that we took a riskier route and it ended up working okay for us. But there are a lot of academic emissions who have tried that and it hasn't worked so it's out. It's a higher well. higher um, risk approach to explore yes. on the edges. But it, you know, has the potential for the higher return. Big payoffs. Yeah. yeah. I love this taxonomy of the busybody, the hunter, and the dancer. It reminded me a bit of it's different from, but Francis Bacon had what was it, the ant and the bee and the spider as the three mm -hmm modes of scientific inquiry. Could you talk a bit about, this is obviously a different taxonomy, but tell us about the busybody, the hunter, and the dancer. This work started really with canvassing the history of Western thought in multiple languages and saying, asking not how is curiosity defined, but how is it described? So what are the behavioral types that are being described throughout Western thought? And over and over again, 
As you can imagine, that's a noisy database, <laughs> if you, you want to put it this way. But there are at least these three types that seem to keep popping up to the top. I'm sure there are more that could be culled from not only Western intellectual thought, but other traditions of knowledge as well. But the three styles are the busybody, and the busybody is someone who's interested in all kinds of information from any corner of the world in which it comes. The hunter, who's someone who's far more focused. So this is like this guy, Wormius, bit yeah, of a busybody, right? Cabinet of curiosities kind of guy. You collect stories, you collect facts, you collect ideas. That's something that really marks you as a busybody. But the hunter is someone who's far more focused and really has one or two things, just a few things that they're interested in really unpacking and knowing everything there is to know about those things. They're the ones who really like to be experts and otherwise border indifferent to other topics. And then the third style is the dancer. And the dancer is someone who's typically very creative about their curiosity. So when they get curious, they like to put two things together that didn't belong together. They like to ask, what if, why not? Let's try it this way, let's move it this way, let's make a mess of this, and just see what happens. They're much more, they generate in the very act of being curious. And then Danny was able to do a, a, some great experimental studies to, to ask, are these styles in fact contemporary? Yeah, exactly. So we were curious to know whether the styles that Perry was able to excavate over the last 2,000 years were present today, or as some people worried, has the information age ruined curiosity for all of us and were something altogether different? So to address that question, we worked with David Lydon Staley, who's a professor at Annenberg School of Communication at Penn, and we had volunteers browse Wikipedia, which is an online encyclopedia, for 15 minutes a day for 21 days. And as part of the study, they gave us permission to put an app on their computer that would track which web pages they went to inside of Wikipedia only, and also how much time they spent on each page. So with that data, we were able to ask, do we see busybodies, people who are flitting from one page to another completely not connected? Do we see hunters, people who stick with one topic for a while? Do we see something in between? And the answer is that we see all of the above. So somebody who's a busybody is going to be someone who starts on a page about snails, for example, and then moves to a page about the history of nothingness. Nothing, we can't see any relationship between those two. And we quantify the relationship between the pages using natural language processing, which can tell us how similar the words are that are being used and the concepts behind them and their meanings. So we can say these are very dissimilar pages. In contrast to the busybodies, we were also able to see hunters. So for example, somebody who only read pages about Jewish history for three weeks, or someone who only read pages about the royal family for three weeks. So we had these two endpoints, and then we had individuals who spanned the gamut in between. Were you able to track what they did after the 15 minutes? So, you know, did they get stimulated to dig deeper into a topic after they learned about it through Wikipedia? That's a great question. No, we didn't track anything outside of Wikipedia or outside of the 15 minutes. That wasn't part of the agreement. But we could we could actually go back and do a similar study and expand it beyond just Wikipedia or have them fill out a survey afterward to ask about what they did following the 15 minutes of browsing. I think that would be really interesting. Another thing we really want to know is what made them move from one page to another page? Some people wonder, were the busybodies just bored? Did they move from one page to a very different page out of boredom? Or was it actually this search for strange, new, very distinct information? Nice to measure their, their dopamine response, right? Also, that would be great. Yes. There are so many more questions we need to ask. Okay, but that experiment, 
is one where the subject is the agent and they're given the ability to choose their method of inquiry. But it seems like most people nowadays, they're in an environment where their agency is constrained. So if you're in Instagram or in TikTok, the environment is manipulating you, right? And it's pushing you in the direction of a particular type of curiosity. It's kind of hard to dig deep. The algorithm will say, oh, yeah, okay, it looks like you're interested in this topic because you keep coming back to it. But do you think that the environment has a big impact on how your network of knowledge is constructed? Yeah, maybe I'll answer this from the science perspective, and then I'm curious to hear Perry's perspective from philosophy, too. So from a scientific perspective, yes, the context that you're describing Each context has its own network architecture that might be like the Eiffel Tower or that might be like a bunch of dried spaghetti noodles connected with marshmallows, so very haphazard. And it could be either very shallow or very deep. Individual fields actually can have these very different network architectures too. We do a lot of work in my lab trying to understand the structure of textbooks, and each textbook has a very different network structure. So if you show that network structure to another person, of course, they're constrained by what it is that you are showing them. So if you only show them a relatively shallow network with only a few layers deep, then that's as far as they can go. If you show them something with more layers, then they can go deeper. So you're absolutely constrained by what it is you are presented with in many contexts, the classroom context included. Yeah, and I would just say that it's important for us that the three styles are not the end-all be-all. So I've talked about these styles with young folks, middle schoolers and younger. I've talked about it with people who are far into their retirements. And we'll often get the point that not everybody says, oh yeah, I'm definitely one of these three. As if there's a recognition, this is the structure, right? Each of us creates just according to these three simple structures. No, that's certainly not the case. And we welcome kind of an investigation into more complexity about what styles might actually be out there and their relationships to their environment, certainly. So what's getting modeled? What's getting encouraged? What's getting facilitated? Just because we have busybody hunters and dancers across Western intellectual history doesn't mean that those are like the net most naturally occurring three, actually. It could very well be that those are the most f- well facilitated in a particular style of Western culture. This is just the beginning of questions for us. So I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the role of models in protecting your knowledge. One of my favorite quotes, and I think it might be apocryphal, but it comes from John Maynard Keynes, and he said, economics, which is my discipline, is the science of model design and the art of model selection. So when I teach, I give the students an inventory, a library, or a zoo of models, stories, and narratives, and then unleash them to go, and whenever they encounter something in the world, it's about, okay, which lens, which filter, which model should I look at this information through. How do models, narratives, stories shape our network model, our network of architecture of knowledge? Danny has to talk about this in particular. The role of modeling in science is important. And I also want to talk a little bit about beasts and beast theories as models of how we think. Because as you know, at the very end of our book, we add another 18 models essentially to the styles of curiosity. We have the three styles, but then we have 18 different creatures that we say they practice curiosity in another 18 ways. And we're hoping in doing so to expand precisely can be like a new zodiac. They can start using it in their dating profiles. Oh dear. Honestly, I think it would help us to better recognize and facilitate the diversity of styles of curiosity that are actually on the ground. But then why model as a move for science and for kind of conceptual exploration? Danny, I would love to hear your thoughts here. 
When you were initially talking about modeling, I did think about the bestiary, but then I also thought of how we model for one another. And I think back to several of the people who have been important in my intellectual life. And I think specifically about the ways in which they moved from idea to idea. Their minds moved in really particular ways that I found honestly strange, but also very intriguing and something that I wanted to do too. And so I think that this notion of a connective curiosity and the focus on the shape, the way that sort of trajectory that the mind is moving through spaces is something that makes me think differently about what we recognize in one another that we hope to emulate or that we would love to learn. So I do think about other humans as models of curiosity that we can access and that we could practice and pattern ourselves after to some degree. And the beasts are another sort of model. And what's the role of a teacher then? Is a teacher sort of an architect or supplier of building materials? What is the role of the teacher? Just to close from the previous bit I was saying, and then I want to hear what Perry has to say about your question. I think that teachers are in this very tricky situation where they have an opportunity to model and to say, here, look at how my mind moves. You could try this too. And they also need to be quiet and not forecasting their own curiosity sometimes so that they can notice and hear and support and value and encourage the kind of curiosity that the child has. So I think that's hard because you can't do both at the same time. You have to sort of move back and forth between modeling curiosity and hearing and listening and supporting the curiosity that the other person has. Yeah, I'll say sometimes in my teaching evaluations, some people say that I go off on way too many tangents, but I'm totally aware of it. And I do it in intentionally because I kind of want to, I don't know, open up the curtain so that they can see thinking in real time. But sometimes you can think of teaching as a performance where everything's scripted. Other times you can think of it as you're just opening them up and saying, hey, here, take a peek inside and see how I do things. Yeah, it's like reality TV. Reality TV, they, it's highly curated. I think they take like 100 hours of content and boil it down to like 40 minutes. I would also say, I think about our mother again here because of the way she handled our homeschooling. It's not just demonstrating how, it's not just that the teacher or the facilitator, I like to think about facilitators rather than teachers, but it's not just that the facilitator models the way they ask questions and listens to the students and figures out the way that they ask questions and the way they're pursuing their curiosities. But also it's our job as facilitators to marshal a vast array of other folks, bring them into the room, whether it's visiting in, in the class or whether it's through the assigned readings or through an example, a clip from YouTube or something, whatever it is to say, here's all these other folks and all these other ways in which they've asked questions. Because sometimes the student needs more than simply introspecting and figuring out how they're curious or modeling the professor's or the teacher's curiosity. There needs to be an array offered and then we practice attuning ourselves. Again, coming back to attunements and noticing. Notice, yeah. how are these questions being asked? And not just any questions, right? How are good questions, stumping questions, the kind of questions that'll like stay with you for years. How are they asked? How do you go about pursuing them? How do you find the ones you wanna ask? So do you think then curiosity is like a muscle that can be attuned or practiced? Is the act of knowledge pursuit something like fitness? I always think of attention as like a muscle that needs to be exercised and practiced. Is curiosity, are there a series of calisthenic exercise? Can we think of a personal trainer as someone who could help you 
cultivate your curiosity by running you through a series of exercises? And would that be, in some sense, an integral part of education, independent of the domain in which you're acquiring knowledge? It's a really interesting question, and I'd love, Danny, to know your thoughts on this. But it's common for people to think about curiosity as a muscle. I just read something recently that really ran with the metaphor and ended up saying you really want to get brawny with curiosity. And I just thought, I'm not sure that that captures it somehow. It could be flexibility. It doesn't need to be brawny, right? It could be (laughs) be flexibility. Yeah, it's at least a capacity. And we have muscular capacities. We also have, for example, aesthetic capacities, ways in which we could practice putting colors on a page. And really, curiosity is like either of those things insofar as you can cultivate it. You can invite it. You can set up minute practices that enhance it in either case, whether you're becoming an artist or lifting weights. We've had some very interesting conversations over the last couple of months in talking about the book with people in business and thinking through whether there are spaces in an employee's day that could be set aside for curious practice, opening up space to ask new questions about how the business is running or about this particular piece of the business that they're a part of or this gadget that they're creating. And it reminded me actually of the National Institutes of Health. So again, going back because I'm a scientist, at the National Institutes of Health, the employees there are given time in their day or in their week, a certain percentage of their commitment that is free. They're able to pursue questions that arise of interest to them, even if it's not directly related to something that they are required to do. And I think that that's really exciting and interesting and makes me ask, how does this then fit into everybody's daily life? Not just in the classroom where absolutely education could be thought of as a way of facilitating growing this capacity that we all have to be curious, but also once we're out of school, if we ever leave school, how is it that we continue to expand that part of us? So when you talk about network theory, I spend a lot of time thinking about organizational learning. And I see a lot of parallels between organizational learning and individual learning, the accumulation of organizational knowledge and the accumulation of individual knowledge. And I do think it actually makes sense to talk about organizational curiosity. And if an organization has a larger, I guess we can think of it as an attack surface, that would be the negative way of thinking about it, but think of it as a surface that has more edges, it's going to be capable of, and also vulnerable to, learning more. You use this term over and over again, this idea of the edge. And I actually interviewed someone who was lead consultant at Deloitte, who created something called the Center for the Edge, which sounds a little paradoxical. Hmm. But it was his contention that the innovation in organizations came from the edges. And that Hmm. one of the jobs of the CEO was to cultivate the edges. And This meant to give them resources, not too many resources, but to really always have a portion of their strategic mission around cultivating those edges, which were able to send out tendrils into adjacent areas and where there were startups and where the interesting stuff was happening. Do you think that this idea of network theory can help you map similarities between kind of organizational curiosity and individual curiosity. I think of the individual as just an organization that has its own modules and has its own connections Mm -hmm. and channels and so forth. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that is a very reasonable extrapolation. It's something we haven't actually looked specifically at organizational curiosity, but we have looked at collective curiosity in science. So what happens when you have a large number of scientists together and they make knowledge together, and that knowledge can't be boiled down to the knowledge of a single individual. It's a collective knowledge. And so we have research papers that we've done in that space to try to understand collective curiosity. So I think that connects pretty directly to your notion of sort of organizational curiosity. It is from a collective of humans. I think maybe what's different in an organizational context is that there are different constraints. So there are financial constraints on the organization. There are a set of rules that the employees need to follow is that the same for science? I suppose so. There are financial constraints in science that determine what questions will be funded or not funded. And there are also constraints on who gets to do what depending on where they are. So maybe, actually, maybe they're not that different. Maybe science is an organization. And I would add on my end that I've done a lot of research, social movements as their own organizations of people, groups of people, collectives of people who end up asking a lot of really interesting questions and I argue are driven by curiosity. So most people think of political resistance movements as bringing answers, right? I figured out what's wrong, now fix it, now change it, change this, pass this law, do this, right? But in fact, if you study activists and activism, one of the things that you see over and over again is a consistent return to questions. What are we really trying to say? How do we actually get through here? If we change this, what are the implications that we need to be thinking about in advance? Who do we work with? It's just like chock full of curiosity and question. That would be a, another place to go to start thinking besides organizations in a, in a classic kind of business sense or scientific research groups to think about social movements and their organizational practices of curiosity. Now, at some point in the book, you hinted that you thought there was a correlation between curiosity and subjective well-being correlation between curiosity and happiness. I mean, to what extent is that wishful thinking or projection? Yeah, okay, Descartes was pretty happy, but Nietzsche wasn't. <laughs> and you talk also about privilege, and you say that it's privileged people that kind of get to be curious. But in a way, privileged people are often not very curious. You're curious when you have to be curious to some degree. You're curious when you're trying to get out of a bad situation. And then once you achieve the good situation, oftentimes your curiosity shuts down. To what extent is curiosity correlated with well-being? And if it is, which direction does the causality go? I'm curious, actually, for you, Perry, to talk about this, too. I'll say from the scientific perspective, there are research articles that have suggested that there's a correlation, not causation, but correlation between certain kinds of curiosity. And so not this connectional version that we've been talking about, but a more acquisitional notion, certain kinds of curiosity and well-being. So, you know, when you can afford to be curious... So the causation could go either way. There's it a plausible story way. for either direction. Yep, I completely agree. Yeah, and the, the thing I would add is just that those studies take a particular definition of curiosity and behaviors of curiosity and or traits of curiosity that are being recognized. And they say, look, folks who are happy tend to be more curious in those ways. And that's important. And what I would be really interested in, especially when we're thinking about more of disability studies and what's called MAD studies and disability community research, I'm interested in, let's take people with depression and ask, how are you curious? And how might that expand what we know about curiosity, turning the other direction? Are there interventions in the educational environment or elsewhere that can create long-lasting changes to one's curiosity and the trajectory of one's neural scaffolding? 
That's not something that I've seen, a longitudinal study that proposes an intervention and then assesses its long-term utility. I don't know, Perry, have you seen anything like that? Yeah, no. So I think that question's open. That's a whole new area of <laughs> research you, yeah. that you can be curious about. <laughs> I think maybe we could go back to social movements again, though, or to specific educational settings. So have there been educational settings that support or mentor a specific kind of curiosity? And has that altered the trajectory of the people who have gone through it? Perry, I'm thinking of the freedom schools, actually. So the freedom schools are ones that engaged in a very particular kind of educational practice that foregrounded certain kinds of curiosity. Yeah, absolutely. So this was during the civil rights movement, and the freedom schools were offered to generally high schoolers in the South. And it was essentially civics education, but it was built on question, existential questions. How is segregation affecting you? Where do you live? Who do you live around? What kind of resources are at your school versus someone else's school? Let's notice what happens when your dad gets treated in the grocery store versus some other guy's dad. And then is it that some of us are bad people and some of us are good people? Is it that some of us are smarter and some of us are less smart? Is it that it's just like, let's actually tackle the assumptions that undergird the anti-black racism at that time. Let's unpack it. Let's see how it's affecting every kid's life. And as kids started going through this education, they were certainly mobilized. And I think it's to a large degree to the credit of the freedom schools that the civil rights movement was as powerful as it was. And it's reverberations continue to this day. So yeah, that's a wonderful example of an intervention. I'm not sure that it's been studied with respect to curiosity specifically, except in our book, but it would be nice to try to really draw out that correlation. And did anybody ever do a, like a Farmingham-like longitudinal study of those people that went through that educational experience? Obviously it wasn't an A-B test because you know they self-selected into these schools, but is there any evidence that this led to long-lasting changes either in one's capacity for curiosity or one's subjective well-being? Not that I know of. Final question. You talk a bit at the end of the book about de-disciplinizing. What would that mean? Just the nuts and bolts in terms of how we would structure higher education or even primary education. What would that look like? I remember when I was in elementary school, my mom helped them to create this kind of gifted program. And it basically meant one hour a day, certain percentage of the students who were I guess not neurotypical, would get to spend an hour pursuing whatever topic they wanted. It was kind of like your Wikipedia study, and some people focused on long-term projects, others flitted from project to project. That was very de-disciplinary. But is that something that we could extend to everybody, or is that something that is going to be for specific types of neurotypical people? What would this look like to de-disciplinize the education? I think it at least means having students learn the contents and the methods of fields as tools rather than as unchangeable landscapes. So I think over and over again, people get introduced to sets of ideas and sets of ways of asking questions as just, this is what it is. This is the content of history in this area. Or this is the content of science in this area. These are the ways we ask questions in this field. These are the ways we ask questions in this field and always have. And people get stuck, I think, in precisely those silos. But if we can think about resources, if we can think about what's in each field and the ways in which the fields have developed as resources for thought, and then to celebrate in a really fundamental, all the way through, not just at the end, but celebrate creativity all the way through the process, 
Should we do it that way again? Should we not? Should we ask that question that way again? Should we ask that question at all again? With whom should we be asking and pursuing that question? I think creativity along the way as fundamental to what it means to be educated would change the entire structure of education. So is it foregrounding assumptions and emphasizing the provisional nature of all knowledge? Danny, what do you think? Yes, and also I like Perry's point about having students really recognize that a particular method, so a thought method or computational method that has been developed in one field and used historically for a while may still be very useful in a different field. And so maybe to give them more projects where they have to take a method from one field and apply it in another or a content space of one field and connect it to another so that they can understand that these little modules that have been constructed in different fields are in some sense a consequence of happenstance and the history of thought. It's not that they it's not that anything, they don't need to be that way, that methods that are used in history can also be used in science and methods that are used in science can also be used in history. So I think that would help. And also this separation between the content or the knowledge and the method. So for students to really understand that those are, you can break them apart like Legos and then you could mix and match and you could make something new. I think you also, if you're going to do that, need to foreground care and make sure that there is a respectful and deep understanding of the method that's being used and the content space such that it's not sloppy mixing and matching. It has to be careful. But I think that care along with the flexibility is what could just create some really new exciting spaces. Would giving people grounding in the history of their discipline help? I know when I started my PhD program, the very first class we had to take was a year-long historiography sequence. And we would start at the Bible and Herodotus and take it all the way through to feminist history and stuff. And when you study biology or neuroscience, you're not saying, well, here's the neuroscience of the 14th century. I mean, you kind of start in <laughs> 2023, yeah. right? I mean, philosophy is used to not be able to get through philosophy without reading a whole lot of old philosophy. Perhaps in philosophy now, you can, <laughs> you don't have to read anything other than what's in the contemporary journals. But is that a way of helping people to understand the provisional nature of what they're doing. I love that. Yeah, I also think it would have to be a critical history mm. too, <laughs> that it couldn't just be history. It would have to be a critical history that uncovers a lot of the serendipity and silliness sometimes and just chance that made things go the way they went, but also the structures of privilege and contextual factors that drove science in particular directions, for example, that would be important, I think, for people to see. Even competing stories of discovery, right? So-and-so is credited, with, but all these other folks did this. That would be really important. Well, thanks so much for joining me, both of you. The book here is called Curious Minds, The Power of Connection. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. <laughs>